0: What's going on everyone? Welcome back to Stacking Slabs. You already know this is your hobby content alternative and I'm your host Brett McGrath. I am a collector of sports cards who just happens to have a podcast where we talk about sports cards and collecting. We are going vintage baby today. We are diving deep and I'm talking to my man sports card Pete on the Instagram machine. This was really fun. He posted a Excel file or a sheet on his Instagram story. And he was talking about his process for maintaining order in his collection. And I said, I want to learn about this process, but I also want to dive in and dig into vintage. I know there's some vintage collectors out there listening to this show on a regular basis. This is the moment. Here is some chatter about it. I'm sitting here as a student trying to learn. Hopefully you're out there doing the same thing. If you like what I'm doing over here, follow, subscribe, hit all the buttons. Most importantly, tell a damn friend that you're enjoying the stacking size podcast without further ado. Well, let's kick it into the conversation. All right, everybody excited for this chat. Um, if you're a listener of Rob show sports card therapist, you're getting a double dose of today's guest, and it's uh, it's fun. We, we don't plan these things. They just organically happen, but um, I'm excited for today's conversation. I am joined by Pete, you know, him at sports card, Pete on the Instagram machine. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about building a uh, process for collecting vintage and goats in the hobby. I saw something from Pete on his IG story this week or this past week, and I was like, we got to chat about this. I'm um, so excited about this. Pete, welcome, man. How are you? I'm good. I'm good, Brett. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. So are you, um, are you feeling like up to speed now? Like you're doing the whole pod- hobby podcast circuit? Like, Hopefully, uh, Rob, that was just kind of like the opening act and this is the main event. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. I intentionally didn't listen to Rob's show. I'm going to listen to it after. I didn't want him to influence the questions that I delivered to you, but uh, how are you feeling?
1: I feel like I got all the cobwebs out, so maybe you're going to get a better product. We'll see.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. So uh, what's fun about this conversation is uh, I don't talk to too many vintage collectors, so I'm sure there are I know there are vintage collectors who listen to this show and are probably like, yes, we're talking vintage now. So maybe uh, I'd love to just kick things off like mostly we always do, but just describe your collecting a little bit. Um, Maybe how'd you get where you you are now? Has it always been this way? Is it has it things shifted? Talk a little bit about that to open up.
1: Yeah, so for a lot of people i think it's always easy to get a toehold into modern and then you either stay in modern or you stay with a favorite player um or you get more mature and you end up in vintage and i think for me i've always loved history and you know whether it was like presidents or just history of the world and so um also a big baseball fan growing up and so those kind of morphed together and you know probably like when i was like younger i'd open up packs of cards right and just like you know obviously trade pokemon whatever and um, as I got a little older in high school, I you know started doing more research about cards and kind of initially fell in love with the the Tito Six Set, right, which is basically the granddaddy of uh, baseball cards. Uh, you know, the, one of the biggest sets out there um, has you know one of the most expensive cards out there, with the Honus Wagner. A lot of history, a lot of different backs. And I think I just like grew into like loving all the knowledge about that. And so I was working at Party City and you know stocking costumes and cutting up boxes and you know, with my first few paychecks, I purchased a T206 Cy Young, which I still have in my collection, you know, from about 17 years ago. And from there, it was hooked. And I think, you know... I was probably one of the few people in their teens that was collecting vintage. But from there, I think uh, I continued to press forward and, you know, slowly built my collection over time in a very limited budget, right? Like going through college and then, you know, the, the pitfalls of out of college, finding a job and having money. And and so I think I, I slowly built my collection, but um, I always stayed really in this kind of pre-war bubble. And, and frankly, I didn't really purchase anything outside of pre-war until kind of, you know, during COVID because there was just so much information on, you know, modern and kind of like post-war and some of the rookie cards. And so I started dipping my toes there, but, you know, to this day, I think, you know, I would say like 80% of my collection is really pre-war baseball, you know, 1930s or or earlier.
0: I hope I'm not uh, disclosing any information I shouldn't hear, but like, you're a young guy, you're 34, Mm -hmm. you're collecting Um, vintage cards, you just gave the reason, right? Talking about your connection with history. um, And that all lines up and makes sense. I think we were talking a little bit when I like think about the profile of vintage collector in my head, like you're not the individual that necessarily comes to my mind. And I'm not here to stereotype at all. I'm just like, we all have our own uh, perceptions of what we think certain collectors or segments look and feel like. Maybe talk a little bit about just like, your age range and like experience in the hobby, and some of the kind of interactions and profiles with other collectors that you interface with
1: on a regular basis. Yeah, so it's kind of a, a mind game in my head because last year's national, I was walking around the booths, and I'm 34, and I was almost the old person whenever it was a modern related um, booth or you know a group at, you know congregating, and then for the OG vintage folks, I was probably the youngest person within earshot distance. Right, I think. What I've noticed, though, is that a lot of people that came into modern during COVID um, that were younger, you know, some of them got smart and realized, oh, you know what? Like there are these, you know, Gowdy B. Roots or a Jackie Robinson rookie or Bill Russell or you know, these vintage cards are actually really cool. And so you've noticed a lot more younger people come into vintage, which I never really noticed before. And frankly, I was kind of a... Uh, jealous i wish when i was you know 17 18 years old i had other people my age that were collecting vintage cards it was really me you know a lot of my friends thought i was a weirdo uh which is totally fine but now it's you know in my 30s it's kind of accepted it's like oh it's actually a cool thing to do and so i think that's kind of the biggest um you know, it kind of blows my mind a little bit. It's like my age group doesn't really fit into either one, but um, you're starting to see them kind of merge together a little bit. But to this day, I think a lot of the vintage folks are much older, and it's because you know they appreciate history more. Um, maybe they were around in the '60s when you know, like you know, Mantle and Willie Mays are kind of coming up, come around. So, um, I think that's why they kind of geared towards older, but um, it's coming down a little bit.
0: I think this is a perfect maybe segue into we were trading notes before uh, we jumped on here and. One of the things that you mentioned, which I was like, I'm going to find a place for this in this conversation. And this is like a little peek behind the curtain, but I think this is the place. Uh, But differences in collector mentality, right? You just talked about feeling like the old guy when you're hanging around modern collectors or ultra modern collectors, and then maybe you're the younger guy, maybe talk a little bit about just like the differences and how each of those segments operate from your perspective.
1: So this is generalizing, but the way I kind of view things is that, um, actually someone mentioned this one point, vintage collectors have cement hands. And what that means is basically, they just hold on things for dear life, right? And so I think population reports are so misleading in vintage because there could be a population of 30 cards, and if it was a modern card that was like numbered to 30, like the serial number, you'd see that card maybe pop up six, seven times a year. Um, for vintage, you might not see it for a year or two. And I think it's just a stickier collecting base. And so I think when people look at cards in vintage and you know one comes to auction and they don't have money for it, um, they're like, okay, I'll wait for the next auction. I've been around for so long that I know that you can never count on A card coming up for auction again within the next like two or three years and so i think which obviously will lead to our conversation about like you know 25 cards and you know being able to pick up you know your go cards but um i think it's just a stickier collecting base to modern's you know defense though i think they've had a more volatile kind of um return on cards and so when you buy a card and it goes up 5x you're obviously more inclined to sell it and Vintage, you just don't have that happening. Like, no one's like, oh my goodness, Ty Cobb, let's go buy his card and go 5X. That just won't happen. The base is too sticky. And and you don't really have any people rushing into that. And so I think that's kind of the pitfalls with modern versus vintage. But then you also see that kind of, you know, recently, I actually listened to one of your podcasts with Chris, uh, House of Jordan. And he mentioned, he's like, okay, all these card indices on card ladder are down, except for pre-war vintage. And I think that's what you get. Like, you don't get like the crazy price movements. And that's why people are a little more stickier with their uh, with their cards
0: so i i one of the my tracks that i've been like hitting recently and i'm not the only one and it's mostly it's bubbling up it's like things are conversations are bubbling up in the background and then i see things and we all see prices go down but on the ultra modern side like a card like uh first card that comes to my mind that is a victim of this is the brady's contender ticket right uh that card you it was like you never saw it and then it went up, 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 up. Then you see it, see it, see it. And then now the prices are going down, down, down. And uh, that's not the only card. There's so many other cards that are impacted by that, which um, is kind of like the narrative of like the sky is falling, the hobby is going down the tubes. That's what people are looking at. Um, so that's my pers- perspective on like just the constant same cards over and over on the more modern side. Now, from what I heard from you, it's like on vintage, it's like, those, some of those cards in the certain grades, like just like say it's a pop 20, like they're maybe show up once, twice a year, never showing up. And there's a competition perhaps of like, you got set collectors, different other things, like people trying to would do anything to get those cards. And so that when they do eventually pop, right, they're going for higher prices, all time highs, just because like, that's just the name of the game, slow and steady wins the race. Is is that kind of the, is that how, am I looking at that
1: accurately? I I totally agree. You are looking at it accurately. I also think there's the aspect of replaceability, right? So for the contenders, Brady, um, if you sell one, if you want it back, just wait a month, you can buy one back if you really wanted to. Maybe a lower grade, maybe a higher grade, uh, you can buy that back. For vintage, I think what also helps it keep sticky is that, you know, like for example, I collect Ty Cobb postcards. The populations of those are 20 or less per issue for a lot of them, right? And so for me, even if I wanted to sell it, I'm it's harder to sell because I'm like, all right, we're going to wait until if I want it again, I'm going to wait until 2027. Um, and so it just makes it a little bit more difficult to sell because that replaceability aspect, even though it might be there, there could, be, there could definitely be an auction next month. Um, there's a fear of the unknown and chances are, you know, the card you sell is probably going to stay in that collection for a long time. And so I think, I think it spooks some people from selling certain vintage cards because they don't know when they'll ever see one again. All right. We're going to get into your process here in a
0: minute, but before we do, I want to understand a little bit about just like what attracts you to certain cards. Like what are those elements? I would imagine now that I understand like history is a big backdrop in terms of your collecting, but is it just history? Is it something else? Are you set collecting? Is it just players? Talk a little bit about that.
1: So really, I mean, it's gravitated over time. I used to be a type card collector and what I wanted was one card of each like tobacco series of each like caramel series um from the 1900s and so i started there and then i got into like all different you know roads i had an e1043 collection i got 15 of them at one point um just like some obscure set and then to where i am now where i'm basically kind of focused on just a handful of players like babe ruth ty cobb uh, and then to a lesser extent you have like joe jackson honus wagner uh, Wayne Gretzky and Michael Jordan, like the goats. And, and that's what I've kind of gratitude. I think going forward, that'll be the case. Um, I have to try to, you know, narrow it down at some point because I just have a limited budget, but I try to aim for those players.
0: And I guess, is it just like, obviously you say Michael Jordan, you say Wayne Gretzky, like it's, I know people want to argue Michael Jordan is goat or not, right? I, but I think like, if you pull everyone, Michael Jordan is going to win that. Um, maybe talk a little bit about the criteria for those players. Like, obviously those are goats, but talk a little bit about like, what is it about the players that you collect? Why do you
1: consider them goats? Anything there? It's a merging of two things, right? So one who transcended the sport, right? So Ty Cobb was the original superstar in baseball, right? Without Ty Cobb, baseball isn't probably what it is right now. Maybe it is, but like, there's an element of denial there. Um, Babe Ruth took the sport to the next level. You know, got the aura around the Yankees, right? Gretzky, Jordan, they changed the way the sport was played, right? And so I think I like that part. But then it also has to be is the cards, are the cards that they have, are they like, you know, do they match up where it's like, oh, I really like the aesthetics of these cards, now I really want them. And so, you know, for me, for Ty Cobb, it's like, okay, great player, you know, biggest superstar, the first one out there. And then on top of that, he has the most amazing, like, Crackerjack card, some of the amazing postcards are like the most aesthetically like great looking cards out there. The Tito Six, right? It just like it just it's it kind of adds up and snowballs into like a very collectible person. Yeah, honestly, same thing with Michael Jordan, right? And I kind of appreciate that. Like some of the '90s inserts cards are phenomenal. Um, on top of like the exquisite patch autos, and so like that makes it very you know easy to collect as well. Where I think the pitfalls of that are like some of the players where like a Will Chamberlain, right? He's a couple of good cards but maybe not to the extent like other people do, even though he was like top-notch. So I don't really collect them as much, even though I have a few of his cards. Um, it's really got to merge the two of those, like great kind of cards, as well as being a player that kind of transcended his sport.
0: So when I think about Michael Jordan and Michael Jordan collectors, I think about like, you've got like a super hardcore passionate base of like, I only collect Michael Jordan cards. He's my guy. That's all I care about. Then it also, there's the ripple effect of Jordan collectors in I collect 90 stuff. So by me collecting 90 stuff, I've got to have a Michael Jordan card or two in my collection. Now with someone like a Ty Cobb, is it, are there, based on people who you interact with, are there specific, just Ty Cobb player collectors, you know, is it like, obviously Ty Cobb is such a, a big uh, co- player and component of vintage card collectors. Talk a little bit about the communities of collectors around a player like Ty Cobb in the vintage space
1: you get a few different, right? So I think, um, you know, I'd fall in the collecting bucket, like the people that like history, right? And so if you're a baseball fan, you think about history and you're like, okay, like who are the big players in history? And so you collect that. I also think that you also get an investor base. The original investors uh, before the, you know, before this COVID boom, originally like pre-2020, a lot of investors went into the Ty Cobbs and the Babe Ruths of the world. And why is that? Because they had like a, you know, they had a kind of, um, you know, window of data where you can see these prices going up over time. So, even throughout like the 08, 09 financial crisis, like T206 cards went up over time. And so, I think, you know, the original people that like looked at the data saw these cards up in value. And so, it was kind of a safe way to kind of put your money. And so, I know a lot of people that are, like investors that don't even care about Ty Cobb and don't even know like his history, but like oh, this these cards go up over time. So, let me put my money in there. For me, it's, I love the history. I love the aesthetics of old cards. And the best part about that is a lot of these old cards, the population is so low. So it makes it even more desirable, right? Because you're like, okay, like there's like 15 of these. Like, I'm if I have one of these cards, I'm part of that special group of people that have that card and you don't see that everywhere else. And like I think that's very desirable for a lot of people.
0: So in listening to you say that and describe that, like I find the situation very ironic. And I would love to get your take on this, where when we when we if the mainstream hobby, you think about a someone who invests in sports cards, they the the first thing people are thinking about are investing in prospects who've never done anything and likely 90% of the time won't do anything. And this word investment is just like basically hot potato, right? I'm going to buy this car at the show. I'm going to try to sell it on this platform. I'm going to try to make a small margin and then move on to my next chase, which, but then you describe like, you've got people who are like, don't even really, they just view like a guy like Ty Cobb as a, a safe investment. Like they might not even care about baseball or they might not even care about Ty Cobb, but they're His legacy is already cemented. The cards that are already in, like are already established. So like, I just find it interesting in talking to a, a, uh, a vintage collector, how different that, what the dichotomy is between what we hear investing
1: and actually what is really good investing. It actually kind of mimics how people in the age group view the stock market, right? So if you're kind of a teenager or in your early 20s, you're thinking, okay, I want a tech stock. I want to double my money in a year, right? Like, forget about the Procter and Gamble's and the Coca Colas <laughs> of the world, right? It's like I want, I want to double it now because you're younger and you have more money to risk, right? You don't have like you know kids or a mortgage, and so um you can risk it more. As you get older, right, and you're you know you kind of get to, the, to this point where like you've seen, you've had your money blown up in some like tech stock or some bubble stock, and you're like, okay, like, I, I just want safe things, and you go into the Procter and Gamble's and the Coca Colas for you know. For card collecting, right? I think a lot of people for the prospects to think about an Indianapolis fan like yourself, right? Anthony Richardson, it's like if he has a great five or six games, my card might triple. So I can triple my money in four weeks. That is very appealing. But then you kind of go through the motions and you know, eventually over time, like a lot of modern people that came into the hobby during COVID made a lot of money and then you lost a lot of money. And I think from there, you're kind of scarred a little bit for the volatility and you get older and mature, and you're like, you know what? Wait, I can just park my money in a T206 and a Gaudi, and you're telling me that they never really go down in value, they kind of at the very least, will stay in value and probably every five years, probably double, which sounds crazy. But um, that's very awesome for long-term collectors, right? Whereas, you know, if you're modern, you look at that quick flip, the thought of wait, I gotta wait two years just for it to go up 40%, like that's boring. But you know what? That's how you kind of accrue a great collection over time. I think more and more people realize that as they learn about vintage. That's incredible.
0: i I just had a call. I'm glad I pulled on that thread a little bit. Um, let's talk a little bit more about vintage so we get it and then we we'll get into your spreadsheet process. I'm curious I'm not a vintage collector, but I'm a fan of listening to people like you talk about vintage it I think I can I can get into any conversation with people who are just super passionate about cars, but maybe like help enlighten me and maybe any modern collectors out there about like maybe most important information to understand about vintage for someone who
1: doesn't collect vintage? Right. and So if you're modern, PSA one, and then everything else is kind of at the bottom. It's like, okay, for vintage, um, it's PSA SGC. And I think especially to go more pre-war, they're probably like right on the same level. And so I think that's kind of a big discrepancy that people think of is like, okay, like, PSA doesn't have this huge gap like they do in modern, right? Uh, for vintage. I think the second thing I mentioned this well, earlier. Can I
0: ask us a question about that? Yeah.
1: What's the why behind that?
0: What, why is it because vintage collectors have graded historically with SGC? Talk a little bit about
1: that. I think part of it is that um, part of it is I think a lot of those cards um, just look, frankly, I don't know why, but. The less shiny they are, the better it looks to kind of a tuxedo. Um, I think that's my theory. I think the other thing is that, um, let will get into the other point, is I think grades matter way less for vintage collectors than modern, right? So the one thing that surprised me like during COVID when I got into modern was the price discrepancy between a 9, 9.5, and, and a 10. And I'm just like, look at these. I'm like, this is the same freaking card <laughs> for vintage, right? They're hundreds of year, 100 years old. And so they're rare. You're going to get whatever comes out, right? And so a lot of my collection is an A grade. A lot of my collection is a one grade, you know, 1.5, two. Like it's very rare to have a pre-work card over a five grade, right? Can you imagine having a five grade in a modern card? Everyone's like, oh, no, yucky, right? <laughs> but that's the way it is with vintage. Like you just have to get what you can. And I think part of that is, okay, like look at this card. I don't care if it's in a PSA. When SGC, I know both of them are reputable for vintage, and so I'm just going for the card. And I think that is a huge point between vintage and modern is when you look at someone buying something, they are not really looking at the grade; they're looking at the card. Where I think with modern, they fall in love with the grade.
0: Can you help me understand the what year are we? Do we hit where it's like on the vintage side? It gets more into the technical scarcity of the card and the value going up. Because I know like there's a a point where it's like there's someone who's got a card that's like a PSA six and they might be going after the PSA seven of that.
1: I but I, I don't know the year like when that starts to become a thing. Like what's the era of that? I could be very wrong, but this is how I generalize it. So I think of vintage as two things. I think of it as pre-war, so 1930s and earlier, and that's where I usually focus on. And then I think of it as 1950s and, and later and 1950s or later is when you have like the psa set collectors right and Got so it. i think from there you know with pre-war a lot of times you actually can't complete a set right think about the t 206 set unless you have a couple million dollars um you're not if you get the honus wagner you're not completing that set and so um i think a lot of people for a lot of these different uh issues are saying i'm not gonna have the set anyway so i just want it you know some nice cards right and a nice car could be a two grade for the 50s, when you're trying to collect a set, then it becomes, a, okay, do I want you know my 1958 top set? Do I want it to have you know all fours, all fives, all sixes? And that's where that can kind of play a part as you get the set registry, which I don't really think you have so much um, pre-war. I mean, it's definitely there. It's just, to a lesser extent, just impossible for a lot of people to do that.
0: I love it. Before we move on, is there anything else that you want to call out that modern collectors should know about vintage? I kind of just jumped in and interrupted, so I want to make sure you've got the floor to call anything else out
1: um i'm trying to think no i I think the grade part is is a huge is a huge part i think um i think you'll also notice eye appeal means way more to people right so it's so these cards are so scarce and so again like even the cards creased up you still have to get it because if you want the card you probably have a chance to get it again but um and one thing you've noticed a lot more recently is that the technical grade matters as the eye appeal matters so much more. So you could have back damage, and which means like, let's say the card was like pasted to an album um, and there's like a slight tear or paper loss in the back. You're probably getting a one or a one and a half grade, but the front could look like a seven. That card will sell for multiples more than another one that's all creased up. And so what you notice is that when you go to trades with people or you go to buy cards, a lot of times, like I talk to, like, if I'm trading or trying to buy a car from another vintage collector, we don't even talk comps, right? It's like, I'm like, how much do you want to pay? It's like, okay, I, I, you know, what did you buy it for? And maybe you add 100% to it. And then we do that or you add percent. Modern is crazy. Whenever I see like, a story like buying at 80% comps, buying at 70% comps, it's like that will not fly with vintage, right? A lot of people know what they have, they know it's rare. Um, if they're not actively selling it, you have to overpay. And I know a lot of people come in and they're like oh like hey is that card for sale i'm like no but i'll listen to offers and like okay well last card sold for you know this i'll give you you know 80 percent of that i'm like no because no. this one is way nicer than the last one that sold there's so many differences it's crazy but i think comps just means so much less like you really don't hear about comps a lot in uh in vintage
0: i love that so much because it just me as a non-vintage collector but just the Uh, I feel like if you are approaching a card and you love the card and you know, it's rare and scarce, you should have some general understanding of what the last sale is. But to me, if it's a cool card, the likelihood of it being sold, uh, it it probably hasn't sold in the last two or three years. So, uh, I feel like just, and this is maybe like, I'm not trying to be preachy to the community, but I just feel like, like, we should be okay with setting the all-time high on a card if it's something that we deeply love
1: and believe in. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'll give you an example. So in 2019, um, 1908 American Publishing, Ty Cobb, postcard, it's a second year, right? Sold for like 25000 uh, PWCC. And then there's only four out there. And I always wanted one. And so finally, one came up to me for more than double that price in 2022. And we were negotiating and I had an idea of what it went for. And the guy was like, okay, I want more than double. And most people would be like, no, the last comp was this. I'll just I'll pay, you know, twenty six thousand or twenty seven thousand. So you make two k. But I know I'm like, okay, like the market has gone up, vintage has gone up. I know I'm not going to see this card again. Like I have to be aggressive, and you don't want to be stupid, right? You don't want to overpay for things. But I think you just can't fall in love with the comp set. Like you can have an idea of what they can go for, but like you can't use that. And I think a lot of vintage people, if they hear you say, hey, you know, comps are this, like they're gonna, they're gonna get so cranky about that. <laughs>
0: All right. Let's move over to your spreadsheet. Yeah. You you had a story and it caught my attention. Um, I think I commented back to you and I, I was like, this, I love talking about stuff like this, talking about other people's processes and like how you go about your business as a vintage collector. I want you to maybe talk through it, like talk about what the spreadsheet is, why you have it, any information there, hopefully give some people some ideas on maybe not necessarily your process, but what might work for them?
1: Right. So the spreadsheet doesn't apply to people that have an unlimited budget, right? So I know a lot of collectors that have hundreds of cards and they just buy it and they put it in their safe and they do the same thing over and over again. The safe overflows, they get a bigger safe, they have no need to sell and they lose track of a lot of things, right? For someone like me, I have a budget, right? And I also have... A lot of cards that i want like a lot of psychop cards a lot of babe ruth cards out there and so what i've noticed over time was that i would sit on the sidelines and if a card came up that was super rare i wouldn't be able to buy it and i'd say okay well i you know i you uh, know i'm all tapped out all my cash is like in cards so um i'm out for the next six months until i ever make money or i have money in my bank account to buy a card and then i thought about it i said you know what's funny a lot of times i'd pass on cards that would instantly be one of my nicest cards in my collection. And so I thought, to, I said, okay, why am I holding on to this like tail of cards that I don't really like, but I have, and I just like, I don't feel like selling it. Maybe I won't get the best price for it right now, but I'm shooting myself in the foot because I can't buy nice cards. And so what I did was I said, okay, you know, rank your top 25 cards in order, do something extremely nerdy and, uh, you know, and then rank them. And then if you want a new card to come in, some of the cards at the end will have to be sold. And then you kind of repeat the process until you're kind of curating this like 25 card museum quality collection. Right. And so I started doing that over the last like year or two. And really what tra- transpired was last year I bought a T206 signed Ty Cobb card. It's like three in existence. And I had to have it. And I think that was my first real test. I said, okay. You want this card? This is going to be like your top card in your collection. Like, you you know, get some pain. And what I did was I literally sold like, you know, my Wayne Gretzky rookie. I sold a Will Chamberlain rookie and my Bill Russell signed rookie. Because I said, okay, I can get those back. They're at the tail end of my collection. Like I like vintage basketball, but I like vintage baseball more. And they fell off to kind of fund this purchase, right? And so um, I think it kind of gave me discipline and the ability to like put in new cards in my collection. And to summarize, what this does is, it makes you dangerous in every auction, right? Because like, if you're in the back of your head, you know, okay, I can sell these five cards. and This will fund this card. Even if you don't want that card, you just know like, hey, like I'm in the game, right? And I think at the end of the day, that makes collecting so much fun. Like no one wants to sit on their hands and not buy anything for months, right? Especially if there's cards they really want. Like if you're in the game, it makes it more appealing. Even if you don't act on that.
0: I love this so much. And it took me several cycles I don't have a spreadsheet, but I I call it judgment day, right? So if like a card pops up that I, I have to have, I don't let any of the price intimidate me. It's like this mindset of, okay, how, if I had this card, where would it rank in my collection? And then you just start lining the cards up together and you start estimating, okay, I think this, these 10 cards would amount to these one card. Most of the time I'm like, you know, maybe a few hundred dollars or so short, but you figure it out. Um, but I love the way you describe just like being dangerous. Right. And I feel like just our mind says like so often, like there are so many roadblocks here. Like we shouldn't be able to get these cards, but we oftentimes don't consider like, look at all the equity that we have built up in this collection already. Like, shouldn't we be able to take advantage of that? And it sounds like that's what you're doing with your current process.
1: Yeah. And you have to look, it's not perfect. A lot of times, you know, you sell cards in, you know, for example, maybe vintage at some point is a little weaker for some reason, and you kind of just have to sell it anyway. And so I think, you know, I've taken a lot of losses. It all nets out to like, as the market goes up over time, right? Like And it's not positive, but I've taken some losses. I think a lot of people are against that. They say, oh, I paid this much for the card. I'm going to lose money on that. And so they kind of, um, they go against that. But for me, it's like, you know what, if you want a new card, you know, in 10 years down the line, like it's going to be worth a lot of money and you love it, it's worth kind of consolidating. And, you know, I think some people just need to accept that, Like, hey, to your point, like it's like judgment day. Like I need to figure out um, what I'm getting rid of.
0: No doubt about it. All right. Let's talk about some of your favorite cards in your collection. I'd l- you've already shared a, f- a few cards that are bangers, but I'd love to hear maybe like your, your top few cards, like what they are,
1: why you love them, and any stories behind them. Right. So for me, I think I love rarity. And so what that ends up being is signed vintage um, usually takes kind of the the front of my top cards. So for example, I have a signed T-206 Ty Cobb, right? That took a long time to get. Um, it costs a lot of money, but I love it. It's in Fountain Pen, my favorite card. Like it's just phenomenal. Uh, I recently purchased a signed Exhibits Babe Ruth. Can
0: I talk about yeah. the the Ty Cobb real quick? Yeah. Where did that card pop up at? And how long did it take you to realize, all right, I need to do these things in order to actually get this? Because this is a card I cannot let pass me by.
1: Yeah. It, it was it sold in PWCC last year. And I originally thought it'd be out of my price range because I never spent that much money on a card. And it's funny because, like, you add up 10 cards that adds up to the Ty Cobb card. But, like, you don't think like that. You think, oh, my goodness. I'm playing so much on one card. It's crazy. And as the auction kind of progressed, you know, I never was able to afford a signed card before I always wanted one. I said, you know what? Like now or never. Uh, It popped up. I don't know what's going to pop up again. I got to make my move. And so I started consolidating. Uh, My PWCC rep at the time was kind of like, listen, like you can do it. You know, don't make excuses. And I was like, okay, I I think I can do it. And so I ended up buying that. And it was the best decision I made because I can buy a Will Chamberlain rookie. I can buy a Bill Russell rookie. You know, I can go buy back. I think I sold like a SPX Jordan autograph, but I never know when I'll get another chance to get a T206 uh Ty Cobb. And so I went for it. That was very stressful, um, uh, but worth it in the long run. I love it. It's awesome. And I think other cards too, you know, uh, with Babe Ruth, I think some of his earlier year cards. So I have a Felix Mendelssohn, which is his first New York Yankees card, um, which I absolutely love. Um, You know, the Gowdies are really nice. And a couple of the Ty Cobb postcards are also really nice as well. Um, again, like aesthetically pleasing, you know, black and white. So it kind of feels old school versus like the color cards and ultimately rare. And I think those are some of the biggest cards that I like. And on the modern side, I really love Exquisite Jordan. Um, so I have an 03 Exquisite uh, Jordan, the horizontal one, number 200, which by the way, pops up like once every auction, uh, which is <laughs> I learned after the fact. Uh, but, uh, again, I still love the cards from the aesthetics perspective, man.
0: I feel like, uh, I got a crass course in how, uh, a vintage collector thinks and operates. And I gained a ton of value from this. Uh, hopefully others out there did too. Are, are you going to the national where the countdown is on?
1: Yeah. I'll be at the national. Um, I'll be there Wednesday to Friday. It's just so much. It is. It's so much. Um, I couldn't do four days. I don't know how people do four days. But, you know, like, look, I I go, it's important. A lot of people, like, you don't really need to buy and sell things. Like, just from a networking perspective, just meeting people and telling them, hey, I collect this, I collect that. Like, a lot of the best cards I've gotten are from people saying, like, hey, I came across this card. I'll introduce you to the guy that's selling it. Like, you might be interested. And that's where the best value is. And so I think, you know, I always encourage people, like, go to card shows, not just even if the card selection is not great. It's just, like, meeting people that might be able to lead you to that next big card of yours.
0: No doubt about it. Uh, hopefully we can uh, get a chance to connect. Um, yeah. This has been a ton of fun, man. Really appreciate you coming on. We'll have to do this again soon.
1: I love to, Brett. Thank you for the time. Man,
0: Pete is the man. Really enjoyed that conversation. We had fun. I learned a ton. Excited to make a connection with him at the National Talk Cards. Do all that stuff. Hopefully you're out there enjoying your collection. Take some time this weekend spend some time with your cards. We're always going and going and going. Open up the case, open up the safe, go to the bank, do your thing, pull out that card and enjoy your time with it. Take care of yourself. Take care of others around you. More Stacking Slabs podcast on the other side.